Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter and join us for a bit. Today, my guest is writer Jessica DeLong, a Brooklyn, New York-based author, editor, book collaborator, and writing coach. Her recent book, Saved at the Seawall, Stories from the September 11 Boatlift, is the definitive history of the largest ever waterborne evacuation. Her first book, My River Chronicles, Rediscovering the Work That Built America, won the 2010 American Society of Journalists and Authors Outstanding Book Award for Memoir. A United States Coast Guard-licensed Marine engineer, DeLong served aboard retired 1931 New York City fireboat John J. Harvey for two decades, 11 years as chief. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted you're here, and I love your work, and your books are so inspiring. So let's set this up for people so that they understand who you are. It was only in early 2001 that you had moved to New York City. You were about six months into a hands-on apprenticeship as a marine engineer on September 11. So where were you that day? What were you doing? And what were you doing in the days that followed? Uh, you know, that, that morning I was doing what a lot of people were doing um, as soon as we realized what was going on, which was wandering around, wondering how we could help. Um, in I was in Brooklyn, and I remember wandering around my neighborhood just desperate to find any way to contribute. I tried to donate blood, but they were already you know completely overwhelmed. And I remember this very painful conversation with this police officer. I said, you know, I want I want to help. I want to do something to help. What is there anything I can do? And he he looked at me and he just had this look of exhaustion and and numbness in his eyes and he just said, they don't know what to do with me. And that just sort of put oh. me in my place and made me realize that I was not going to be able to be useful. And it's because I was only six months into this new life as a mariner that it didn't even occur to me until the next morning, what was Fireboat John J. Harvey doing? I had really just started on the boat. I had just started to get to know this crew. And I called first thing that morning, the 12th, and I said, where are you? And my crewmate who answered the phone said, where do you think we are? And I said, how do I get there? Mm. which is very different from the mariners who many of the mariners who I interviewed for my book Saved at the Seawall because the identity of being a mariner was so ingrained that they knew exactly in a split second what what they could do to help you know what was the specific skill set or equipment or all of the above that they had that other people didn't have in that moment so the pilot on fireboat John J. Harvey, so this is the person who is an FDNY firefighter who served aboard the boat, and they're called pilots on a fireboat because there is a captain, which is a fire captain, so it's a separate sort of hierarchy. The pilot is the one who steers the boat. And he had worked with this boat for decades, and the boat was retired, and he retired, and then they were rejoined in their retirement, and he came out um, when this boat was now a, a preservation project, you know, old vessel, mm-hmm. 1931. We actually, yesterday was Fireboat John J. Harvey's 90th birthday. We just celebrated. <laughs> <laughs> She's a, quite a dignified old lady. Um, and so... 
Bob Lenny had just made it to the World Trade Center site, and so he was able to tell me how to get there. And mm. I was able to get to the Navy Yard because, as, as people will remember, the bridges and tunnels were shut down. There was no way to get into Manhattan. I was in the wrong borough. And so uh, merchant mariners ended up taking me over by boat. And people who were here may recall that on the 11th and actually the 12th, the way that the wind was blowing was basically pulling the column of horrendous smoke toward Brooklyn. And so that was Mm. what I was headed through on my way around the tip of Manhattan and um, just arriving there and every part of me sort of bracing myself for what was to come. And the thing that happened that was... (laughs) that was kind of an odd uh, both and was that I rounded the corner of the tip of Manhattan and I saw this array of workboats that were lined up along the seawall. And I saw fireboat John J. Harvey in that mix of boats. And I could see that the boat was pumping water. It was actively doing the work for which she had been built. And so at the same time Mm. as I'm tense and bracing myself, I had just had this swell of love for this boat and swell of love for this opportunity (laughs) to do something, something, anything to help. And that's that's where I ended up on the 12th. Oh, it's just an extraordinary concept that coming around the bend of Lower Manhattan, yeah. And you you published your first book. Well, well, I just want to make sure everyone understands that first you wrote My River Chronicles, which is mm-hmm. rediscovering the work that built America. And it's a memoir written as a deeply personal tale that reveals the history of hands-on work in America. And you also take on the 400-year history of the mighty Hudson River. But you, you write from this very specific place. So obviously, you've got this astonishing thing, which is September 11th that's happened, but you, you start in your book writing to write this first book. And I think what fascinates me most about the order and the decision and the place you write from is my audience is writers, and I think it's very helpful for them to hear how you write about our own acts of service without being self-serving. You know, doctors, firefighters, everyday people running from a place of civic duty to absolute heroism run the risk of putting themselves in a pulpit. But instead, you shoot from down here. So how did you avoid that in both books? How did you write it and and from what level place did you decide to write? Oh, that's such a good question. And it's it's so absolutely delicious to talk craft of writing. <laughs> so I just wanted to thank you again for the chance to do this because it's my favorite thing in the whole wide world. Um, yeah, so, me too. <laughs> <laughs> go figure. So um, I... I I do struggle to answer this question, though, because for me, I guess I feel like it was there was no risk of that because really, I mean, this is just very, very frank. I I don't have pride or a sense of heroism in terms of anything that I've done in my life. I don't. That's just Mm -hmm. just, that framework doesn't fit for me. I actually wrote a piece for Mm -hmm. Daily Beast about heroism and how I think it's actually, it ends up creating a trap um, and it ends up dehumanizing everybody, both people who are, you know, put on this pedestal and lionized as heroes and, and everybody else who doesn't realize, you know, we end up not realizing that we actually can take steps every single day toward goodness, toward good, you know, right action, toward that um, 
if we think that heroes are something somebody else, yeah. then we won't necessarily take advantage of our own agency. So that's sort of the larger trappings. But from a writing perspective, for me, I mean, <laughs> the position from which I wrote the first book is quite literally underwater <laughs> because I worked in the engine room on Fireboat John J. Harvey. I was brand new. I had never, I hadn't grown up around boats. I mean, I grew up in New England and a lot of times people assume like, ah, you were a water person. And I really wasn't other than this uh, whale watching trip, which I <laughs> recount very briefly uh, in in my River Chronicles where I like, I basically just threw up my crab meat sandwich. That's it. <laughs> you know, like I was not yeah. a mariner. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> but I mean, it just paints the picture of the 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 knife that I was when I started out. Um, so my father's a mechanic, and he's has a brilliant mechanical mind, and is always you know filled with coming up with interesting solutions for problems with very makeshift you know whatever he has on hand, and that. That experience was very, has been very, very, very helpful in terms of my work on the boat. So I did come with that, but not a maritime thing. So the way it works on the boat is it's a bell boat. So what that means is that the actual changes to the propellers that move the boat through the water change, the changes are made in the engine room by, by me at the time that I was working there at the control pedestal. And so that means I'm quite literally um, in the boat, so I'm dry, but I'm underwater, and my view was a waterline view. And so that was the like tangible lived reality for me. And mm-hmm. so perhaps that's mm-hmm. what informed the writerly position. I mean, really, I'm just infinitely curious. I was meeting the most incredible people. I was... I was so hungry to understand this harbor that had, I had a vague sense of the historic heft and all of the change and history that had been made in this harbor, but I couldn't see anything except a porthole view. And so I was Mm -hmm. just, I was fascinated. And that position of fascination and curiosity and just genuine love for learning about what was going on around me and what had gone around me for 400 years, that that's a position from which I wrote because that's just genuinely how I felt. I love it from the portal, from the waterline. It's great. And it's exactly the kind of answer that we need. You talked earlier about what you were doing on September 12th, but another thing you were doing on September 12th was standing in front of a downtown message board on which people had left instructions to and about those who were missing. We all remember seeing those message boards. You had a reporter's notebook in your hand, and you wrote them down. You've written since that you didn't quite know what you were doing at that moment, except for you were doing what we do. I want to talk about that reporter's notebook for a second. In my Mm. career at the New York Times, in my many years of reporting since, that notebook has been what stands between me and either total terror, utter despair, um, complete naivete sometimes. You know, you go Mm -hmm. running out of a building to cover your first murder or fire or whatever, and suddenly all you got on you is the notebook. This is, of course, pre-phone, where we Mm -hmm. see everybody just recording everything. What does that notebook do? Oh, wow. Well, you know, it can do a lot of things for for good and evil, I feel like. Um, not Maybe not evil, that's a bit overstated, but um, 
we can use it as a shield in the way that you've kind of described, you know, where it's like, I imagine it's probably the same as um, somebody who's a photojournalist or who's filming something in that there's the camera between you and the the horror that's unfolding, if that's what you're Mm -hmm. documenting. And that can feel like a shield. But, you know, there's this like whole barrage of things that are coming to me in, in having to address this question. One is the reality that it used to be that a press pass and a shield would be enough that you could go into a riot on the street or something you know, a protest, a something, and that Mm -hmm. would be enough to protect you. And it is not the case anymore because there are Mm -hmm. all of these really horrific examples of um, that that idea that being part of the press could shield you from what's unfolding around you is... that's that's not there anymore. We we no longer can walk right. out with that confidence. So that's one piece that's occurring to me. The other thing is is that in a way using it as a shield it, it's adaptive but it's also sort of false because it creates a divide between us and our sources. And so I'm sure, you know, mm-hmm. as recording devices come in, you you know, you we all have this moment where as soon as we hit stop on the recorder, that's when the amazing thing comes out, right? Because <laughs> it's almost like the recording yes. device is serving as a barrier between us and our sources. So that's one thing. Um, or I guess that's two things. But what was happening for me that day and what I was writing in the notebook, which I still have, it wasn't an official message board at all. It was literally like missives written in the dust. So it mm-hmm. was desperate messages from family members. And so I just remember very vividly it was Lieutenant Krisky, John Krisky, call home. And it was only yeah. years later that I found out that he was among the the firefighters who had not returned home or, um, yeah. So I didn't yeah. realize that he was among the dead in that moment. And instead I was just, and there were bits of poetry that people had written down and it was just this desperate writing of words to send a message to cry out in grief and pain, to um, to say we're we're never going to surrender, you know, all of these things. And so it's so interesting to think about the written word and all the weight it carries for us. Mm-hmm. For me, pulling out that notebook, it was maybe it was an attempt to shield. I don't know. It's hard to to reconstruct. It was absolutely instinctual. It was just I just had to put these things into words in some sense that maybe someday I would understand what the hell had happened here. Um, yeah. And, and I don't know if I have, if I do understand, um, but it was just, it was this, it was absolutely necessary. It was mandatory. And I feel like in a same yeah. way, it was the same desperation that other people had when they took their fingers, gloved or otherwise, and traced in the dust of the people that we were looking for to write those messages. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think you write so beautifully that for some years you avoided conversation about your time at Ground Zero. And I'm going to quote you here when you write, I was wary of taking this on. A decade after the terrorist attacks, I still struggled with the psychological fallout from my service at Ground Zero. And you write in this beautiful, generous, and terribly revelatory piece in Brevity magazine um, about receiving the opening salvo from your editor suggesting another book. Specifically, she encourages you to expand a piece you had published about the spontaneous boat evacuation, and you're reluctant. Um, So here's my question. 
What are we asking a memoir writer to do when we ask her to go back into trauma? Are we asking her to reanimate it? Are we asking her to look at it from here? I coach memoir writers all day, and this discussion Mm. is daily. You work with writers as a book editor. What do you say when the place from which they are reporting is some previous trauma? What advice, both personal and writerly, do you give to people? What, What are we asking them to do, and how do you get them to go do it? Mm, such a such a big question with so many different pieces mm-hmm. to it, and and I spend all day on this as, as well as you. So, I think um, one thing that's really really interesting to me is the the changed public consciousness of trauma and what that means. Now, of course, you know the danger is that it get, the word gets overused um, and misapplied to things that are challenging not traumatic. Um, but mm-hmm. that what is really interesting to me is the neuroscience. And in my next life, I'm going to be a neuroscientist so I can figure this all out because oh. I find it so fascinating. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. So I'll get it worked out and then I'll come back in, you know, in time and, and tell everybody what I learned. Um, but the <laughs> the power of narrative even just from a um, from a healing perspective, not from a craft perspective, but from a healing perspective, the narratives that we tell ourselves are absolutely transformative. They can transform our lives from version A to version B. And there are moments, there are all of these tools that different mental health providers are marshalling to, to make that happen. So first off, I bring this mindfulness of some of the healing modalities around trauma, and it's something that I've independently researched a lot so that I can be an informed guide as people do Mm -hmm. the hard work, as my clients do the hard work through memoir. One thing I tell people is that separating out, so say you have your your list of scenes that you know, your you know, your core scenes you need to cover. Some of those are going to be mm-hmm. pleasant to write. I mean, is writing ever pleasant? I don't know. But like they will be relatively <laughs> easy, right? The emotional tenor of that is gonna be maybe uplifting even. And then there are the neutral scenes where it's just like, I need to get these details down and da, 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 da. And then they're the ones that are gonna take a toll. And so mapping that out ahead of time. To the extent that you can. I mean, obviously, scenes come and go as you're crafting a memoir, but mapping that out so that you can balance out the workload and not do all Mm -hmm. the heavy stuff all at once and give yourself options. So if you're deep in a scene that is just taking you into a really bad spiral, you can stop. And then we'll talk, I'll answer also about like adaptive strategies in that bad spiral moment. But that mm-hmm. you can still be moving forward on your project, but in work that will take less of a toll. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. The other is I, I try to listen really carefully and hear in my clients the subtext, the thing that they're not saying, their resistance, and be mindful about where that's coming from and to try to buoy and support the work that needs to be done to make sure that they are pushing, mm-hmm. but in in a sort of gentle way. And I'm sure you do this too. And so sometimes it's like, okay, you have this really hard bit that you need to write. And what are you going to do? Like what scaffolding can we erect before and after? So how can we put you in a place, make sure that you have a buffer so that you're not going straight into some, you know, marketing meeting for work <laughs> immediately afterwards where you have right. to like, you know, so... And also honoring and encouraging people to pay attention to their bodies because so often the trauma will have physiological effects. I'm working on a project right now where the author is having all of these health issues as, you know, 
mm-hmm. very much in tandem. I won't say as a result of, but certainly in tandem with the deepest work that she's doing about the trauma. Mm-hmm. So helping people remember that we are corporeal beings and that this is another way that these things manifest is, is something that I do too. Yeah, that those are just great perceptions and, and tremendously helpful. You write a lot about the pressure on you, the cost to you. Well, you don't, you don't say the pressure on you, but I, I perceive it to be the pressure on you of, of writing your second book. It's called Saved at the Seawall, Stories from the September 11th Boat Lift. And it chronicles the largest boat lift in history. It's bigger than Dunkirk, bigger than anything ever in the history of water rescue. After the planes collided with the towers and before the Coast Guard put out a call for all available boats, it's this astonishing spontaneity of boats coming and taking somewhere between 400 and 500,000 civilians from Manhattan in less than nine hours. Whoa. And we talk Mm -hmm. in publishing about finding a market differentiator. You know, few people recognize the significance of the evacuation effort that unfolded that day. And this book takes that on. Like nobody else had written that. But that's a lot of pressure on you. And so let's talk about that, that pressure to to take on this one thing that nobody else has chronicled. You know, you, you wrote about how when you chronicled the 400 years of the Hudson history, you thought, well, oh, that was a big job. This is just one day. Maybe this will be easier. And, I, and then you discovered <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't. Yeah. No. So um, <laughs> how did you keep your distance? in that. You kind of covered it a little bit for other people, but for you specifically, how did you maintain? Is it exercise? Is it knowing that you're hovering over it? Were you unable to keep your distance some days from this astonishing assignment? Very much all of the above. There were days Mm -hmm. that were extremely hard, and it was the reporting, the writing, the structuring that just knocked me out. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. also the if this is a show for writers, the realities of publishing, which this book went through, and I'm not even going to get into it, but so it was (laughs) ill-fated at so many levels. You know, the marketing department blew up and all these things. So all of these barriers that stood in the way of me doing what I really did, I really did feel the pressure. I still do feel the pressure of the fact that Mm -hmm. there are people who told their story to me who they hadn't told anybody else. They had protected their family members. Mm-hmm. from even the darkest stuff and the rawest details. Mm-hmm. And we cried together and we would, I mean, it, when you're doing this this work, whether it's with sources um, or if you're doing this work with clients who are writing memoir, when you're walking with people through their most harrowing moments, there's a huge responsibility that comes with that. And I remember actually making sure that by the end of our call, and there was, I guess I won't reveal who the the individual was, but at the time, my source had a newborn and we were trying, we had all these technical difficulties of trying to have this conversation. And then it was like, when's the baby going to wake up? And I had to make sure that I got my source back to safety in their story before mm-hmm. we hung up because I didn't want to leave them hanging in a, in a desperate moment, right? And so I feel a tremendous pressure to do right by the sources who gave so much to share this history. And I feel an obligation mm-hmm. to history because what happened was 10 years had gone by and still this story had basically gone untold. And I, I just, that just became impossible to me. And so I was determined... 
I was determined that the story had to be told, and I knew that I had a very particular lens that I could lend to this story. This was my community, and you know, my sort of allergic reaction to the whole hero narrative. I guess I don't think I had the clarity that I have now all these years later, but I feel like that drove my decision to to do this and to do my best by it. Mm, that's good. I like that. And you mentioned structure before, and you mm. have this terrific uh, recounting that you do about an aha moment you had with structure. I know these things can happen because I've had my head on my desk many times, rolling it back and <laughs> forth over the keyboard, begging for help. And usually it's because I'm shooting from the wrong angle, you know. And then right. you go to a movie or you get in a conversation with a child and somehow something pops into your head, some metaphor, some slant of light, and suddenly you see a new way to tell the tale. And these things can be really hard to trust, but they are very real, these revelations, and they should be mm-hmm. heated. And you write that your your manuscript was headed straight for the rocks, which I completely get. <laughs> and then you pick up a, a copy of Walter Lord's, among other books, Walter Lord's great book, A Night to Remember, that chronicles the final moments of the Titanic. And you start to shoot from a different point of view. You talk about pointillistic painting. So just please, for the listeners, explain, you know, pointillistic painting is that dot, 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 dot dashes of color, that unmixed color, you know, that goes directly onto the canvas. I'll help people with that a little bit. But tell me mm. how the pointillistic aspects, Lord, what does he do? He he has a rapid fire list of names at the beginning of the book. And you realize that he's going to sort of skip through those people, or it's going to be very fast, or there's something you get from that. Can you just let us in on to what happened to you that allowed you to finish this book? So the pointillism was absolutely huge, and I was worried about it coming off as some sort of... I guess I was worried that it was weird, but <laughs> how do you yeah. how do you trust? Yeah, but how do how do you trust these things when these flashes come? In my case, it was absolute desperation. I had no other options, so I had to just go with it because, really, yep. what I realized was that fractions of inches or fractions of seconds determined everything in terms of people's fate that day and mm. it, it mm. the way that the, the Venn diagrams that got created for time and space and I like poured over maps and aerial views and before the attacks and after the attacks and like how space and time sort of connected and timelines and all this stuff and I overlaid these and I started drawing I'm not an artist I started drawing and mapping out how people's stories intersected and what was amazing mm. was that stories that had nothing to do with each other ostensibly actually ended up overlapping in particular on this one particular vessel called Fireboat John D. McKean, where all of these disparate characters ended up converging at a certain point, which was extremely helpful, obviously, to realize that. But the pointillism, that whole idea is that they use color theory, pointillist painters, and they just put the the green next to the, I'm not going to get this right, but like the green next to the red next to the you know blue, whatever, and, and mm-hmm. the colors blend and our eye fills mm-hmm. in the detail. So what I was noticing was that that's the same way that constellations work, is that you have this night sky 
all of these individual you know, sparks of light and people have created stories around those so that you see Orion's belt and you see the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper and, you know, Copernicus or, you know, whatever. I'm not an expert on astrology or astronomy either. But I, just that the way that the mind can fill in the blanks and that I realized was what was happening on the pages of Walter Lord's book, that the, this cascade of names is just pouring over you and it's almost like that sending a message to the reader that it's not any one of these individuals whose stories are going to like carry the lead. Instead, it's the wash of them coming over you. And that's what I endeavored to do with Saved at the Seawall is to just tell you little bits and pieces about these individuals so that the whole story comes together in an amalgamation, almost like a, a juxtaposition that is informative in some way. Oh, it's great. And I get it. And the idea of trusting it, as you said, it came to you in a in true desperation. And yes. I told the story before about about I wrote and reported a book for a year and a half on behind the scenes in the world of forensic science. And mm. I kept just writing it from the pulpit. It was like every other book on forensic science that's ever been written from up here, you know, from mm. you people can't see what I see. But and then in desperation, took myself to an afternoon movie, and it just happened to be that football movie, Any Given Sunday. And it's all shot from the turf, which we just don't see football that way anymore. You know, now it's all mm. shot from drones and stuff. And I, I literally got up in the... I was like, oh, I got it. I, I, I figured it out. I know how to do this. Yes. <laughs> and I was with yes. my husband at the time, and he was like, you might be over-caffeinated. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the people who go on this journey with us. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. They do deserve a special honor because they listen to this stuff. Or worse, you don't tell them. You don't say it out loud, you know, or or they just look blank. You know, there's no discussing this at Thanksgiving dinner um, with your in-laws from (laughs) from wherever. You know, they're like, yeah, whatever, honey, have another glass of wine. But it's very, (laughs) you're you're honoring this great tradition of annotation, right? We have on Mm. us a lot, and we have to pull from it. And so that's going to, as we start to wrap this up, I, I, I just, I'm so curious, you have such an astonishing range. I mean, you've published in CNN.com, Newsweek International, Rolling Stone, Psychology Today, New York History, Huffington Post, it goes on and on. But also the topics that you've taken on, everything from gender to this marvelous world of the waterfront. And I wonder what you're pulling from. Whenever anyone asks me to explain my eye, I always Mm. say that I'm a sports writer's daughter, because I am. My dad was a sports writer, which is a sort of portmanteau profession that combines the delight in the games that people play and the precise language that allows us to chronicle those games. And I watched Mm. him love his life. And I wanted Mm. that too. So you're also a postpartum doula? Uh, hello. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> define that for people, please. And then just let me in, please. Just tell me, when does that piece of you get pulled from in your writing life? I, I just wonder how she gets annotated. 
Oh, so interesting. Okay, so um, postpartum doula is basically someone who helps families, newly expanded or newly made families, reckon with the fact that there is now a newborn that has arrived, and now what do we do? And so the sort of integration of this new baby into the home, and, and how do we manage? And so the idea is coaching and guiding and evidence-based information as opposed to a mm-hmm. baby nurse you know, or other things where someone will swoop in, you know, with their magical nanny baby whisperer cape and just sort of take care of it for you. (laughs) So it actually very much, very much connects with my work with clients to help their book dreams come true. And so it's walking side by side with somebody as they are creating a manuscript. I mean, manuscript is obviously that's sort of an, a late stage of this because there's so much other work that goes in before you even get to the drafting stage a lot of times. But helping to guide people through that is just really immensely satisfying. And, you know, books are puzzles and writing anything is, is telling a story is a puzzle. And so I find that just, I'm just insatiable. And I just, I love figuring out new ways to, to make the story come together. And I love thinking about it from the reader's perspective, as well as, you know, what do they need, right? So the I, though, I mean, it really, I was just totally stubborn when people told me that there is no way, like, you needed a beat. I was a freelancer starting out. They're like, you need a beat. You can't be all over the map. And I was just like, no. <laughs> I just, you know, stomped my feet and, and banged my fist. And I said, I, I'm just, I'm so curious. I mean, I'm I'm immersed in the Hungarian Revolution right now. I'm immersed in mm. itinerant preachers in the South. I'm like, I just, I have all of these clients working on all of these different things. And I just love learning about these things and jumping into a world and then saying, hey, look at this cool thing I learned and putting it on the page in a way that the reader can receive it the best way possible. Well, that absolutely connects you to the postpartum doula in just the best way. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. I'm so grateful that you came along today. Oh, such a pleasure. And I I thank you for this. I feel very indulged that I was able to talk about writing craft because so often I'm just talking about the story. So thank you so much. It's such a treat. You're You're welcome. The author is Jessica DeLong. Get her books, Saved at the Seawall, Stories from the September 11th Boatlift, and My River Chronicles, Rediscovering the Work that Built America, wherever books are sold. See more on her at jessicadelong.com. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me on how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a starred review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. 